As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray for illumination. Holy One, your word is a lamp to our feet. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and strength to follow you on the good path you set before us. In Christ, amen. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Holy wisdom, holy word. Good morning. Good to be in worship with you on this first Sunday of Lent. Today was also an annual meeting day for us today here at Knox, and uh, thank you to all of you who showed up early this morning and helped us conduct the important business of this congregation and welcomed our new elders and deacons and members of our nominating committee who were elected this morning. We also welcomed uh, Reverend David Annette as a, an associate pastor in this congregation. Joyful news for us all, and we will share news with you about an installation service that will follow that vote so that we can celebrate together. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and holy God, we thank you for your presence among us in so many ways and for the miracle of your holy word. We thank you for its blessings and challenges and your grace and love. And so startle us, O oh God, with what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to sit up and take notice. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just this past week, when I was eating lunch at a restaurant, I found myself in conversation with the owner, who expressed that she'd seen a lot of success over the years, but lately the job seemed harder than ever. <coughs> Staff, customers, economic realities, whatever it was, something about this season in life had just made the whole thing seem hard. Why? Well, 
I'll share with you that as a pastor, I hear this kind of thing somewhat frequently, and it's not all about these days or this particular time, but always. Professionals and parents and all kinds of people go through seasons during which things seem especially difficult. Sometimes it feels like life has become harder or less meaningful or more complicated than it was in the past. And we feel a need for some kind of a reset or fresh start or at least a new perspective. The reality is that life is hard sometimes and we need to care for ourselves and we need to tend to our spirits in order to be ready for the challenges in each day and especially the seasons that may be especially difficult. And if we look with courage and honesty at the mess life often appears to be, we can at the same time find greater beauty and poetry in that same mess and hope to take some joy from it. I think training us for that might be the purpose of this thing Christians call Lent. I want to show you a painting this morning. Caitlin, would you go ahead and put it up? And I'm going to come down here so that I can see it a little bit better. This is a painting that you'll find at the Cincinnati Art Museum. I uh, stumbled upon it not too long ago and kind of fell in love with it. It's called Morning. It's by Henry Mosler. It was painted in 1888. I'm going to take a moment and just kind of walk you through the characters who are gathered in this painting as they start their day. If you start over on the left, you've got uh, this first child who is probably the most put together of all of the kids in the picture. She is uh, mostly ready for the day, all dressed and ready to go and is enjoying standing on that piece of furniture. If you go then up to the, the top of the painting, you find another child who is literally climbing the walls. And if you have much experience with children, you look down below that child and you can imagine that that large hat is about to be removed. <laughs> if you go uh, then down to the table, there's the baby who is um, sitting there at the table and learning that important developmental life skill of eating with a spoon. And just next to that, Ideal, idyllic little scene, you've got another child for whom that developmental effort has failed and is drinking out of the bowl and probably making some slurping sounds if this were accompanied by something you could hear. And then finally over at the right hand side of the painting you have uh, this one more child with a parent or a nanny uh, showing us something that uh, was very enlightening to me that uh, even back in uh, earlier, simpler times, it was always a challenge to get a four-year-old to put their clothes on. <laughs> and if you look closer at the painting, you'll notice that there are other things that make this just a wonderful, true-to-life, early morning scene from the coffee grounds that are resting on the table to the cabbage that's fallen upon the floor and the light that comes in through that window on the left. 
giving sanctity to the whole scene. This was painted in 1888, but it's actually a scene that depicts a countryside scene in the, uh, in the 17th century. And it was painted during these days of the Industrial Revolution, hoping to give those folks a departure into a simpler and more meaningful time that they all so craved. Something that might be just as relevant for you and I living in the information age and maybe craving some of that same simplicity. And I love this particular painting because to me there are two meanings behind it that are clear. That mourning has always been hard and mourning has always been, been beautiful. You don't have to have children in your house for mourning to be an ambivalent experience. How many among us have planned on a night before to have a great day tomorrow, or at least a productive one, only to wake up the next morning with an aching back or a scratchy throat or a text message of distress that must be dealt with or a fender bender on the way to work or an unwelcome email in your inbox, a news story that breaks your heart, or a coworker who's going to be difficult today. And suddenly the great day you had planned for becomes something else, a great disappointment. Is there anything to be done about this? When the challenges come, is there a way to redeem them? Is there a way to find God's beauty and poetry at work? Enter the story we read this morning from the book of Genesis, the story of Noah, the flood, and the rainbow. For starters, I invite you to consider this, that life is often frustrating for all of us, and sometimes life is discouraging enough to make you want to give up. And in this Bible story, God seems to share that frustration because in this story, which begins a mere six chapters after the moment of creation, a great flood destroys it all because God seems to have decided that it's time to start over. But in today's reading, at the end of the story, there is this poetic statement by God, this establishment of a new covenant with Noah and his descendants, promising never again to destroy the world by a flood. And in this story, God acknowledges the tragedy of what has taken place in the flood, and perhaps even seems to be carrying a sense of regret. At the very least, God makes a promise that going forward, things will never again get so bad to make it worth scrapping the whole thing. God wants us to learn to live and maybe even find joy in the midst of the mess. Now, anyone who's not completely horrified by the violence of the story of the flood and who is willing to keep on reading the Bible finds that this story fits a theme that comes up again and again and again in Scripture. It is perhaps the most important storyline of all, 
that in the beginning, God creates the world and calls it very good. God places humankind in a beautiful garden to tend and enjoy. And when that experiment fails in Genesis, God's purpose for the rest of eternity will be to help us try to navigate this world and make our way back to the garden and receive the life of goodness and blessing for which we were made. That is God's promise, the promise on which God will never give up. And every time we see a rainbow, we are supposed to remember it. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, a church season during which we will experience together a different kind of flood story, a different story about passing through death on the way to life. This time, the story is centered around God's own son, Jesus. And during Lent, we will follow Jesus on his path to resurrection, which only comes through death on a cross. And here we see a renewed telling of that flood story that once again, often in life, in order for rebirth to happen, first something will have to die. We are called to go on this journey with Jesus. It's a journey of personal exploration about what in our own lives is not helping us get back to the garden and therefore needs to die. An addiction, an attitude, an unhealthy relationship with greed or lust or some other sin. This is the story of Lent. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see a pattern we are meant to follow. To seek out the things in our lives that we need to let go or put to death. So we can experience more of the joyful life in the garden for which God created us. Over the next several weeks, you'll hear sermons around the question, what was I made for? And the common answer for all of us is that God made us to let go of the things in life that are dealing us death and to accept God's invitation to turn to the joyful garden. Lent is a season for thinking and praying about how we do more of that. When I look at that painting, I see both of those messages I mentioned before, that mourning and really all of life is beautiful and also is hard. I think about what it's like to chase my own children around the house in the morning, cajoling them to get dressed, eat breakfast, take a shower. And I realize that every day I make little choices to either experience these challenges as an unwelcome annoyance that is ruining the start to my day, or to receive them as an amazing gift through which I get to shape a young life. And I realize that most of the other experiences in life, the ones that are hard, also have the opportunity to be redeemed if I choose to look for God working through them. Perhaps the same thing is true for you. A favorite author of mine, Craig Barnes, 
tells a story about this. One morning he was on a trail run. He was probably in his 50s at the time and he was making his way along at what was a good pace for him. And all of a sudden, a team of cross-country runners, college runners, came from behind, running like gazelles, and they flew right by him like he was standing still. And by the time he got to the end of the trail, where their finish line was, the team was standing around, fully recovered, talking and laughing, while Barnes, ready to collapse, bent over and sucked wind, and wondered how anyone could think there's such a thing as a good run. But it was just about that moment that the college runners all began to cheer. And Barnes looked up to see that in the distance, a Special Olympics team was now approaching the finish line. And even though they weren't moving with anything near the speed of the varsity team that went by before, all of them were smiling from ear to ear loving not only the applause and encouragement, but the joy of the run itself, even in spite of how hard the effort was. It was not an experience of perfection, but it was one of joy, of life lived without a veneer and full of grace. Barnes writes that suddenly he found himself alongside all those other young people, cheering louder than anyone else for those joy-filled runners. And then when he got back to his car, he couldn't help, he couldn't stop crying. Barnes had stumbled upon his own need to learn how to receive the joy of the day. And he goes on to say that the portal into joy is confessing the truth that we are not whole. No one has to pretend. And the truth feels so good that we just want to cheer when we see someone else exhibit it. Our lives are so full of things we wish were somehow different than they are. Sometimes we feel that way for very good reasons. And many of the sources of our struggles are problems we are not going to be able to fix. When you're 50 and you can no longer run like you could when you were 20, it's normal to feel some remorse over days gone by. And there are much greater problems in the world that are truly the cause of misery and suffering. But if we're ever going to be able to contribute something good to the real struggles, we've also got to practice dealing with the little challenges of every day. Just like in the morning painting, which can be interpreted either as a total mess or a new dawn full of accidental joy, Amen.